Today's daf is daf mem hey. Um, today's shir is li'ilu nishmas. One second. Um, tzvi ben Tzvi ben Zion ben Yisrael, Mori bas Yisrael Idol, Shraga Fivel ben Baruch, and Batya bas Eliyahu. May the Neshamas have an Aliyah, and may the memory be a blessing. Okay, yesterday we were discussing the next point in our discussion of slaves, and that is an, a, a master is not allowed to, um, well, he, yeah, he's actually not allowed to insist his slave goes with him to Chuslaret. If a slave, if, if we're going to see today, if a slave runs away from Chuslaret to Eretz Yisrael, Etc. And uh, on that, um, thank you. Um, on that, so the Gomorrah on the sixth last line of Mem Dalad Amud Beis 44b says, Omer Avanan Shmas Minei Demar Shmuel Tarti. I remember learning two similar halachas from Marshmul. The one halacha was regarding this discussion that we've just had. I, a slave that is sold into Chutz Aret must be freed. The Idich and the other teaching that I heard from him was the Itmar, where it said, If someone sells his field in the actual Yovel year, what's the halacha? What's the halacha if he sells his field before the Yovel year? Well, then in the Yovel year, it is, it goes back to the original owner. What happens if he sells it in Yovel year? So Rav Omar Mechur of Rav says, Well, it is sold, it's 100% good sale, the Yotze and it. Goes back to the master immediately. The Shmuel, Amar Shmuel says, it's not sold at all. Now, so we've got these two halachas. One is that the slave sold to Chutzlaretz goes free. And the second one is a field sold in um, in the Yovel year goes, um, returns, um, is not sold at all. Now, in one of them, he said that the money must be returned, and in the other one, he said the money does not have to be returned. And I don't know which one he said that halacha on. So, well, let, let's look into it. From the fact that it teaches in the Braises, if someone sells his slave to Chutzlaaretz, he goes free. And he requires a Document of freedom, mi rabo shayni from his second master. Shmamina kaniya rabo shayni. We see that the second master acquires it. How do we see that the second master acquires it? Because he has to write the star. Only the real owner has to write the star. And secondly, below hadrizvini, we also have said that the sale, he doesn't return the money, or he doesn't get his money back, because that's the penalty that he has to free the slave. So when Shmuel, so again, so when Shmuel said that the, uh, it's not when uh, Rav, uh, when Rav Anand said that these two halachas of a field being sold in Yovel, there the money would go back. It's not a sale. So he gave him the money for the field, the field goes back, he gets the money back. It's not a good sale to sell a field in Yovel. Um, and uh, regarding an Eved that's sold to someone in Chutz Laaretz, so the slave is sold, the second master has to free it, but he doesn't have to return the, the money. He doesn't get his money back, so the, the original owner doesn't have to return the money. Yeah. Yeah. You mustn't. Yeah, you're not allowed to sell or buy a slave into Chutzlaret. And what Shmuel was saying there is, it's not a sale, and the money returns. Now the Gemara asks, Ravanan, why did Ravana know this? Why did he, he's like, oh, I'm not sure which teaching was this that is not a sale going on. So, he hadn't heard this Brisa. And we have that as a principle that we expect Amorim to know every single Mishnah. And we expect them to know a huge amount of Brises, but it's not essential that they knew every, doesn't uh, take away from his, uh, his scholarship. And why didn't he work it out from Shmuel? By the fact that he says it's not a sale and the money, by saying it's not a sale, shouldn't the money return? So he, okay, so don't go to a price, so just be medaic, be precise in what Shmuel said. And you can work out that the, it's not a sale and the money returns.
Or just was Shmuel was uh, was above him. Earlier, yeah. yeah. I'm not sure of the exact, but it seems that Shmuel. So the, why didn't he work out from what Shmuel actually says? Because maybe you'll say that it's not, when all Shmuel said was it's not a sale. So you telling me you want to tell me that it means it's not a sale, therefore the money goes back. Maybe it's not a sale, and it means the money's a gift. I here I'll pay you a, uh, here I'll pay you a million rand for your field in your oval year. Oh no, I lost it. <laughs> Maybe that's what he's doing, giving gift. Where do we see such a precedent? So he says, Someone who does kiddush into his sister. So he gives her a, well obviously it's going to be a, reg- a diamond ring saying, To his sister. Rab says, well, he has to give it back. Kiddushin does not take effect. It's not a good marriage. So the sister must give the money back. Shmuel says, the money's matona. Everyone knows that when you that you can't do kiddushin to your sister. So ask this brother, what's he doing by giving her a ring saying, behold, you're married to me? He's uh, he's just uh, he's giving her a gift. And that's maybe you might have thought that's the same thing here. And that's why Rav Anan said it might actually be that you don't get the money back. And we learned and we actually worked out that. Yeah, you, um, what did we say here? Um, that he would actually get the money back. Unlike by someone who marries a sister. Okay, Omar Alei Abayin Rav Yosef. Abayin said to Rav Yosef, Why do we penalize the buyer? We should penalize the seller. Again, we say when someone sells their slave to someone in Chutz the buyer has to free the slave. And he loses out. That's what he just saw. He says, why should the buyer lose out? So Omar Alei Lav Akhbara Galav El Achura Galav. He says, No. It's not the mouth that is the, the mouse that is the thief, it is the hole that's the thief. So because if the mouse couldn't didn't have somewhere to dash and escape from, he had never managed to steal. So it's the hole that's the responsible for the thief. It says, well if not for the rat, if not for the rat, well what's the hole, hole done? I mean it's, in my mind it's a partnership. <laughs> That's the one who enables the thief. If no one would ever buy a hijacked car, then no one would bother hijacking a car. So it is both. But how can you blame it fully on the whole? Okay, so I'm not sure why they seem so adamant and it must be one or the other. But Mistov Rahechet Iki Isura has some considerations. He says, no, you follow where the Isur is. Who are you going to penalize? The person who has the Isur. No. Yeah, well, let's just keep it to our case where it's straightforward. The one who bought the slave, he has the issue. He has the slave that was sold to Khutori. So he's the one who must suffer the penalty. The mouse who runs it into the hole. So that's in the hole, the stolen goods. So you're going to punish the hole. Um, it was a slave who fled from Chutz Laaretz to Eretz Yisrael. And his master chased him there, and then they went to, uh, took him to court by Rebbe Ami. Asana Kaimah to Rebbe Ami. So, Amalei, Nichtov Lechosh, Tara Admei, Vekosov Legitah Dechayrusa. It says, what I recommend you do, is you write a star for the slave's value, and you write him, so he will write you a, a star for the slave's value, and he writes you, and you write him for the slave, a get, so he can go free. And if not, I will take him by force from you. Now it seems the pshat is that, not that they're going to force him, but here the slaves run to Eretz Yisrael. Not really allowed to take him back to Chutz And Everett, So what's your options? To free him and we'll make him write a shtar that he owes you the money for his value. What's your other option? Can't make him leave Eretz Yisrael? To sell him there. And it's not a din here that the slaves fled to Eretz Yisrael, that you have to free your slave who's fled to Eretz Yisrael. The din is that you're not allowed to take him to Chutzar. So what are your options? So he's, so he's, he's still your slave, but I've got, I've, so, so he's saying, I've got good options for you. The best option is let us write a document that he owes you the money for his value. Otherwise, what's the other option? You're going to have to try to sell him. And if you're going to try to sell him, everyone, wants to, everyone knows you want to take the slave back to, to Chutzar. And they're not going to give you a good price. Because, well, they know that, sorry, they know that you want to go to Chutzaret and you have to leave your slave here, so you have to sell him. They're not going to get a good price. So rather take this option. 
says Midarebi, and where do I get this from? Midarebi Achi Bereid Rebi Yoshia, from the teaching of Rebi Achi, the son of Yoshia, the son of Rebi Yoshia. Now, we're going to see a few different roshas. This is going to be, I think, the third one. So he says, The Tanya, as we learned to the Prince of the Lord, He shall not remain in your land, yet he, lest he causes you to sin against me. Would you think that this Pasuk is referring to a non-Jew who has accepted upon themselves not to serve Avodah Zorah? Interesting, that's what Rashi calls a Ger Toishav. The Torah says, You're not allowed to um, deliver an Eved to his master. Where he's escaped to you from his master. Now, my Takonta, so what do you do for that slave? He shall dwell amongst you. So, a non Jew who has. Um, so, he's actually explaining this Posog almost totally metaphorically. Because he's saying that um, when it says a, sca- a, a slave who has escaped his master, we're referring to a non-Jew who has escaped his heavenly master, his avoider Zorah. Not a slave. We're not talking about a slave. It's all uh, what's it? allegory or metaphor. I don't know which one's which. Um, that the um, so, so so really that sort of non-Jew is allowed to dwell amongst you. That's what. That's how they're learning this piece. So those. So, so that's the one drasha. Oh, but then we have Akasha. He says, Oh, Akasha leile Rabbi Yoshia, hi meim adoinov, meim oviv mi boida. Or actually, I'm going to change the girsa to the Masoros Hashas. It just makes life much easier. So Akasha leile Rabbi Yoshia. There's a difficulty with the Rishia. It says meim adoinov from his master. It should say meim elokov mi boile from his gods. Why does it from meim elokov meim? Yeah, why does it? It should say from his gods, not from his master. So that can't be shut in the pasuk. So El Amar Rabbi Yoshia, rather Rabbi Yoshia said. Yeah, so that was a Tanakam, and now Rabbi Yoshia gives his shot. The second shot, the pasuk speaking about someone who sells his slave into Chutzlaret. One who sells there. Um, he shall. You're not allowed to give him into the hands of his master. Are you not allowed to let him go to Chutzlaret? Says, ah, oh, but there's But then his son has a difficulty with the father. Rabbi Yosheh's. Well, I've explained in the pasuk. It shouldn't be who escaped to you. It should be escapes from you. I, he wants to leave to go to Chutzlaret. He wants to. So again, the language of the pasuk doesn't make sense. So Ella Omar Rabbi Achai Rabbi Yosha, Be'ever Rabbi Achai Rabbi Yosha explained the pasuk as follows: Be'ever Shebarach Bechutz La'aretz La'aretz Hakosam Metaber. Pasuk speaking about a slave who frees from, who runs from Chutz La'aretz to Eretz Yisrael. I that you are not allowed to return the slave to Chutz La'aretz. And that's, again, that was this teaching that we built on. Remember, that was the start. There was a case where the slave fled to Eretz Israel, and the Rav said, you're either going to have to sell him here or let me get away by writing the slave that he owes you the money because we're not allowed to send him back. How do I know we're not allowed to send him back? This Joshua of Rebbe Chai Rebbe Yoshia. Tanya, we have another bride. You're not allowed to deliver a slave back to his master. Rebbe says that Pasuk is discussing someone who's who frees a slave on condition to free him. So, so someone buys a slave on condition to free him. In just whatever, I'm not sure why he's doing this. Maybe uh, he knows he's being mistreated or something, something like that. But he wants to buy the slave to him. He says, Hachi, what's the case? He says, The cost of lay, Hachi. That the slave writes as, the, the master, the, the buyer writes as follows. When I redeem you, you are, when I buy you, you are acquired for yourself. You go free. Rashi points out that this sugya is tied into the discussion of, remember, and a person give something that he does not yet own. 
Why? Because he does not yet own the slave, so how can he grant his freedom? So this must be in line with the opinion that even if you don't own something, you can still affect the Kenyan for when you do. That's like Rebbe Meir. But either way, we see Rebbe has a totally different understanding of this posuk, and that is the concept of if you buy a, f- a slave on condition to free him, you're not allowed to change your mind. That's how Rebbe passed. It's like Rebbe Meir. Rav Chizda Orak Lei Avda Lebei Kutai. Rav Chizda had a slave who fled to this Kuti area. This is all outside of Eretz Yisrael. We're leaving Eretz Yisrael for the meantime. So Rav Chizda sent them a message, please return my slave to me. So the Kutim sent back, remember the Kutim, we're treating them as non-Jews, but it's always a question how they were viewed. But they, even if they are non-Jews, they still try to follow the Torah Shev Islam. And if they were Jews, then they tried to, then they, well, they ignored rabbis and they followed Torah Shabbat. But, um, so, so they said to him, the Pasuk says, well, you're not allowed to return a slave to his master. Sorry, we just want to follow the Torah. So let's skip the brackets. He said, no, Pshat in that Pasuk is a slave that flees to Eretz Yisrael, like Rav Achai Rebbe Yoshia says, but you, where my slaves fled into Chutzaretz, can return it. Oh, so that's a good straightforward drosh in the Pasuk, they'll accept it. Why am I bringing that out? Why did he send them the drosh in accordance with Rav Achai Rebbe Yoshia? Why not any of the other? We saw four droshes on that Pasuk. Why is he explaining it like Rav Achai Rebbe Yoshia and not like Rebbe or something like that? Because that's more clearly in line with the reading of the Pasuk. Again, if he would have given them a drosha, they wouldn't have accepted it. They don't believe in Torah Shabal Per and the droshas that Chazal make. So therefore, very good, he told them the one that fits in very, very well with the Pasuk, so that they'll accept. Um, one of Abaya's donkeys were lost by the Kutim. So so he sent him a message, can you return it to me? So you're going to see everything they do is in, in correct in order. So they said, okay, we'll return it to you, but send the Siman. So they said, he said it has a white stomach. So he loved Nachmani, if not for the fact that you are Nachmani, Remember, Abaya's name is Nachmani. It's a discussion. We saw this earlier in the Masechta, but it's always interesting to know. Is his real name Abaya? Is his real name Nachmani? Rabba, remember, Rabba his, was, raised him. He was orphaned and Rabba raised him. And Rabba's father was Nachmani. So some say Abaya's name was the same thing. So he wouldn't call him by his father's name. He called him Abaya, ah, the guy, like my father, like from Abba. Or the other opinion is, no, his name was actually... What? Um, he called, maybe Rabbi called him Nachmani out of honor for his father. So I forgot the second one, but either way, that's Abaya's name. So Nachmani says, not for the fact that you're the great and saintly Abaye, I would not send it to you. Why, why would we not return the donkey based on what you've given us? Aren't all donkeys, don't all donkeys have white stomachs? Either Siman you gave is not a good Siman, but we trust your Abaya. Just to ask a few questions on this. And you can look at them for homework. Um, the uh, one is, so the Kutim trusted Abaye. So why did they ask for a Siman? And if they didn't really trust him that they asked for a Siman, why did they give it to him? Oh, actually, your Abaye will return it to you on a bad Siman. So he's saying like they had to follow the motions. Maybe, okay. Um, but that's a question on that sugya, if they believe the buy or not. Um, and now we're going on to, this is I think quite a famous Mishnah. I think it's been brought to light by a few controversies. Um, it's been made famous by uh, the discussion of negotiating with terrorists. I don't know if that would apply here as we'll discuss, but that's what it is. Remember, we're leaving slaves. We've done about, what, four dafo or so on slaves and tikkun olam regarding slaves and now we're moving on to the next tikkun olam. Remember, this whole period is discussing institutions for the functioning of society, for tikkun olam. So, you're not allowed to free slaves for more than their value because of tikkun olam. Yeah? 
You're not allowed to help captors escape because of Tikkun Oilam. It's not because of Tikkun Oilam, it's because of Takonas Hashfuyim. What's the difference between Tikkun Oilam and Takonas Hashfuyim? So we'll see in the Gemara, but Tikkun Oilam is so that they don't get angry and treat captives harshly in future I oh we see our captives escape we better like totally tie them up and leave them in a deep pit or something like that they're going to treat captives more harshly in the future so that's Takonas Hashfuyim that's Tikkun Oilam because it's for everyone who might be captured and because of Takonas Hashfuyim what Rabbi Shami that would be they're going to treat the current captives harshly they're going to be angry they're going to be furious and anyone else who's captured by them they might even say they aided and abetted the, those captives escaped, so they're going to treat them harsh. So it's a takana for those who are captured. Um, okay, just quickly, um, an interesting, um, some points on this. When we say, what, how do you evaluate the slaves? We said you're not allowed to free a slave for more than his value. You're not allowed to redeem a, not a slave, so you're not allowed to redeem a captive for more than his value. What's, how do you determine his value? Shirashi elsewhere says, slave that. Miri says it depends who it is. You know, if he's a wealthy man or if he's a, what, the president of the shul, <laughs> you know, someone who's got uh, some leadership position, then maybe the, his value is more, even more than his slave value. Um, that's one point. Um, then interesting, there's an amazing uh, Radbaz. This is in the 1500s. The Radbaz was, uh, I think, a little bit more senior to the Shulchan Aruch, but I think they were at the same. They overlapped. They lived together. Um, so a very, very phenomenal Tamar Chacham, also known as the Rebbe of the Arizal. <laughs> so that's, uh, this is the Radbaz. So he said, uh, see, he's got a tshuva. It's actually, he's got it's like volumes like this, thousands of tshuvas, but one of his tshuvas. Um, they asked him, why do Jews spend so much money on redeeming captives? So his first point is, how do you evaluate the redemption money for a captive? Is, what are non-Jews paying to redeem their captives in that time? So it's not by, is it a lot of money or is it not? It's what's the norm almost in that time when you're paying for redemption of captives. That's his point. And then he basically comes on with a whole lot of just, he says, and you know, if Yisrael or Gomlei Chassadim don't stop them, if they want to, they can pay more. And, uh, and then he comes up with a whole lot of... Uh, um, excuses why in certain cases you are actually allowed to spend more to redeem a slave uh, to redeem a captive than his, to ransom a captive than his market value we'll see some of those um, we'll, I'll touch on some of those soon let's just get into the Gemara um, yeah, we'll see, many hold that if you're paying from your personal funds you can pay as much as you want. It's only when you're going to place the burden. Well, let's see this. Let's get into the Gemara. It says, for the benefit of the world, for society, is it because of the burden on the community? Or is it so that you don't, so that they don't come and capture more people? Okay. Is the problem that it's going to be too much money? If every time you have to redeem captives, it's going to cost you millions and millions of rands. The pure community is going to be bankrupt after a few captives. Or is it because... No, oh, if it's a, such a lucrative profession, rands, uh, capturing Jews, then more Jews are going to be captured. So what's the reason? So Toshma, the lady Bardarga, Lady Bardarga redeemed his daughter for 13,000 golden dinarim. A phenomenal sum. So Omar Abai says, Who says that he was fulfilling the will of the of the Chachamim? Uh, Maybe he wasn't fulfilling the will of the Chachamim. Maybe he was acting. Uh, he's like, I don't care. I'm not. You know, everyone goes up to him and says, You're not allowed to. The halacha is. Um, the police tell him, Don't do. It. He says, It's my daughter. I'm going and redeeming her whatever it costs. I don't care. Now look, on the one hand, it's, you could easily say that, well maybe he paskin like the opinion that it's for Duhka de Sibura, he was paying from his own money, so it's not a problem. That's how we want to answer the question. We said, look, it's not such a good answer because maybe he wasn't acting in accordance with the Chachamim. Um, another interesting point on this is... Uh, sorry, what's this? Um, yeah, how do we paskin's not so clear? But there are a few fascinating cases in history. One is the Marama Rutenberg. 
He was the Rebbe of the Rosh. He lived, I looked it up just before Shir. Okay, I'm not going to look for it now. Uh, it's right. He lived about, he lived between the early 1200s to the late 1200s, around that period. Um, and he was actually, uh, he was, uh, yeah, he died in uh, 1293. He was actually captured. He was actually fleeing. It, it seems he was fleeing Germany. He, the, let me put it in context. Maram Rutenberg was the Gorelator, the Rebbe of the Rosh, and a whole lot of other Tamidei Tachomim. Um, but he was known as like, the Gorelator in Ashkenaz. And he, I don't know if it was due to persecution or for whatever reason he might have been trying to flee, but he was captured by some noblemen and held ransom. And the Rosh, his student, actually raised the money. Phenomenal, phenomenal sum. Far more than you would normally ransom someone for. And uh, he wanted to redeem him, and the Maram Rutenberg wouldn't let him. He said, You're going to cause uh, havoc. It's too much on the, I don't, know if he said, I don't know if he said it's too much on the community, or if he said it's uh, going to encourage people to take more Jewish rabbis' ransom, but don't do it. And he ended up dying seven years later in prison. He died in prison, and he was still held in prison, I think, for another, I don't know, for seven or 14 years, for another many years, until finally. Forgot the name of the person, but he's actually buried next to him, the person who ransoms his body to take it for burial. But that's the story of the Maram Rutenberg, famous. And the Rosh actually then fled to Spain. He's like, things are not livable here. So if it was general persecution, he was afraid he was also going to be kidnapped, but he fled to Spain, the Rosh. Um, and that's why you have the in the father of Ashkenaz, the Godolador of Ashkenazi jury, living as a Spanish scholar in Spain with the Spardim. Um Then another, where this discussion also came up more recently is Rav Hutner was kidnapped in the 1970s. He was on a flight, I think, to Israel. And the Palestinians, one of the Palestinian terrorist organizations, captured him. And they wanted to ransom him. And there's a whole big discussion to ransom him. Interesting, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky on that said, he said, look, all these discussions that we, this Mishnah, these discussions are in normal times. So since 1948, the Jews have been in a state of war. And in war, you have to view things differently. Firstly, any money you pay is not going to, you know, give some captives money that they're going to go spend and who knows what, or give them money or give some nobleman money that he's going to renovate his castle. Or so. Any money you give them is going to be used to go and harm more people in war. It's going to use the enemy, it's going to help aid the enemy against us. So he said the rules of war don't apply here. And that's, uh, and then people often bring this teaching again when we say, um, when people, uh, what was it? Oh, um, people often bring it when the, the discussions of, you know, redeeming Jewish soldiers or Jewish bodies from the hands of the Palestinians, how much are you allowed to pay, are you allowed to, how many terrorists can you give, if you're not encouraging it, etc. And then they have their other calculations, but that's just a very interesting, it touches on this, but how relevant is this to a war situation or to dealing with terrorists as opposed to dealing with just regular gangsters or noblemen who are just trying to make some more money. Um, very interesting, just Tosis mentioned some of the, what could be exceptions. One of them, and uh, he brings it all from Gomorrah's where we see. So the one is maybe your wife is different because your wife is like yourself. And a person can redeem themselves for as much as they want. My money, I can do what I want. Um, a second um, possibility, he says, if it's a Chochom Muflag, a Talmud Chochom, you can pay much more. Okay, the Maram Rutenberg didn't let that, but theoretically, you could pay much more than the value for Maram Rutenberg. Um, yeah, so Ishta Atmo Chacham, and there might be a few other, ex, let's call them in inverted commas, exception where people would find excuses to pay more to redeem captives. Okay, carry on. You're not allowed to help captives escape because of tick, because either because of Tikkun Oilam, we said they're going to treat captives harsher in future, or because of Takonas Hashvuyim, they're going to go very harsh and torture the, the living, the current captive. So my Benayu, what's the difference? Where they only had one captive. If they only had one captive and you're able to help them escape, there's no problem of Takonas Hashvuyim because there are no other captives, captives there are no other people they've kidnapped that they're going to harm. Now we bring this story. The daughters of Rav Nachman used to stir the pots with their bare hands. They didn't bother getting a spoon and dipping it in and stirring. They would just dip their hands in and stir. So Rav Ilish, Rav Ilish was so confused by them. I'm sure they washed their hands before. But it's boiling, so it doesn't matter. You don't need to worry about germs when it's boiling to you. 
And call Siv, the Pasuk says, I've only found one in a thousand men who reach this level of piety and no woman. So you can't have such pious women. It doesn't make sense that they're able to do this. What about these daughters of Rav Nachman who are, seems, it seems they're so pious they're able to stir the pot with their hands. Now interestingly enough, um, I don't know why we see, we're going to basically come out and show that the daughters of Rav Nachman were not the most pious. And he's going to say at the end of the story that it must have been witchcraft. But before we get there, there are many cases in Shas of pious women. Phenomenally pious. There's the story of Marukva, where remember him and his wife were running away and they had to hide in an oven. They didn't want the poor person to see who had given them the money. They hid in the oven and his, his wife, he, he was burning and his wife wasn't. I mean, she had the special merit of Tzedakah. But again, we see pious women. So not sure exactly why um, him, but he was clearly confident that something was up. And Yes, something it caused an incident. I, it's going to become uncovered that they weren't that pious, and the, and them and he was captured with them. One day he was sitting. This is Rav Ilish was sitting next to this man who could understand birds. Asa urva the like a, a raven came and started chirping at, or I don't know, squawking at Rav Ilish. So Omar lay, my Omar, so Rav Ilish said to him, what's, he, what's the raven telling me? So Omar lay, Ilish Barach, Ilish Barach, run, Ilish run. So Omar, Urva Shikra, who Velois Samchina lay, says, I can't, ravens are liars, I'm not listening to them. I'm not taking his words seriously. Adahachi, in the interim, Asayon of a lay. My comrade. In the interim, a dove came and started chirping at uh, Rav Ilish. So Rav Ilish turned to the guy next to him who could understand uh, birds and said, what's the, what's the bird saying? What's the dove saying? So Omar lay, Ilish Barach, Ilish Barach, flee Ilish, flee Ilish. So Omar, we found that B'nai Yisrael are, are compared to a, a dove. I'm clear from here that there's going to be a miracle and I'll be saved. I can trust the dove. says so Omar Ezel, let me go check on the daughters of Rav Nachman. If they have remained faithful, if they've remained good and pious, I will return them with me. And he said, how's he going to find out whether they are faithful and stay true and uh, chaste throughout this ordeal? So he says, I know that women always discuss their private matters in the bathroom. Let me go listen by the bathroom and hear what they're saying. He heard them saying, Ah, look, these are our husbands, and we used to have husbands in Nahadai. Let's tell the bandits to take us far away so that our husbands don't come and hear that we, this is where we are and then redeem us. Oh, so you see, they've totally lost their, their, their piety. They've decided to abandon their husbands for their new husbands, their captives. It says, Kom Arok. So Ilish got up and he fled by himself. Him and the man who could speak to the birds fled with him. For him a miracle happened. He was able to cross the river and escape. He was found and killed. When he returned, when he returned, he said, I know how the daughters of Ram Nachman were able to store the pots with their hands. It was through witchcraft. It couldn't have been through normal means. It couldn't have been through their piety. As we've seen, they weren't that pious. That's the story of Ilish. A lot of very complicated points in here that clearly it's not a, just a story of what actually happened. But just one very interesting point. What happened? Firstly, and this is based, the Gilion, the Gilion Ashas points to a, a source elsewhere that Elish himself could understand birds. So wait, so what happened here? You have Elish sitting there. He asks, this raven comes and starts talking to him. He asks the squawking at him. He asks his friend the Akum next, the Nantu next to him, what's the bird saying? And he tells him what the bird's saying, and he says, Yeah, but we can't trust ravens. First, he is prepared to trust an, an Oved of Rizara, but not a raven. Is he that more trustful? Then, secondly, when the dove comes, he says, What's the dove saying? And he asks the Akum, and then he trusts him. Oh, the dove's reliable, you're reliable. Oh, it's good time for me to flee. If he knew the language of birds, why is he asking this Akum what's going on, and how can he trust him in general? 
So the Sichus Musar explains that Rav Chaim, uh, I forgot his name. It's not Rav Chaim. It's uh, Rav Chaim Shmulevitz, the Rosh He explains. He says no. He says he knew. When you're in a situation like that, you hear what you want. So when a bird comes chirping at you, you're going to interpret it exactly. You're going to hear and interpret it how you want. It's like in class, you tell your kids. If you uh, if we finish this Mishnah, you can go to break. And what did they hear? Go to break. <laughs> you hear exactly what you want to hear. Um, or with children at home, you know. But and we, we work like that our whole times. So we interpret signals exactly how we want to want them to play out what we really want. It's called confirmation bias. The other ways of referring to it. So he said that's what he, he knew that. So he kind of knew what the Raven and what the Yona were telling him. But in his mind, he like wasn't prepared to. Uh, go all out. But when the, when the Akumu had no motivation to hear, flee, Ilish, flee, then he could take that as reliable. Okay, let's go on to the new Mishnah. And that's, I think, something very important. We've got to, consti- uh, we've got to constantly try to seek out our blind spots. What are we interpreting in the world exactly how we want them interpreted? So for you're not allowed to buy from non-Jews or let's say more than their value. What's the tikkun oilam here? Because we don't want them to start uh, uh, firstly, they're going to start charging more and more, and we're going to feel re- we have look have a safer Torah. They're selling it; we better buy it. But they're going to sell it at an exorbitant price. Or you could say, just like we saw earlier, we don't want them breaking into our shoes and stealing our stuff, so that we pay this huge amount for them. So that's uh, that's the story. Sifrei Torah, very similar to captives. They asked from Moshe Feinstein. There was a safer Torah that they saved from the nuns. This is more to do with the uh, cover of the Sefer Torah but, and how to treat it when you have redeemed it. As we'll see, it's a whole question if you're allowed to even use that Sefer Torah. Do you have to burn it, etc. Um, but, I also must find there was a, could they take the Sefer Torah that they managed to save from the Nazis and put it in a museum? I, may, I think it's along the lines, I have to check it up, and, uh, but it's along the lines of, uh, you know, like put it in Yad Vashem to like highlight what they've done to us as a so, uh, so, so, so Rav Moshe actually said yes. So there, that is covered for the Sefer Torah. Let's almost show its ideals. Let it stand up for the Jews um, and bring protection. Um, yeah. Okay. So in the next mission, no, no, exactly. What you're saying. And the next. So, so now onto the Gemara. But just before we go into the Gemara, whenever you see in the Gemara a term for non-Jews, so we see Akum, that means Oydavar Zara, idol worshipper or Nohri, or Ger, or no, different terms for non-Jews. There's a few questions you have to ask. Firstly, is that Halacha, or let's all one second, is that the name of that Akum? Um, is, that the, is that the technical term, or is there some level of censorship involved, and it's been changed to allude to something else? You know, like in South Africa, we never allowed to refer to uh, a certain, let's not say South Africa, but in uh, you know, in Russia, you can never refer to the, the, the government badly. Yeah. In America, you can refer to the government badly. In, uh, in uh, South Africa, you refer to the government badly, you're probably going to be accused of racism. So you're going to have to use some other word or some other phrase, or it's going to be censored. Um, so we, when they use different... So that's important. And then a second point to realize is, is it when do we just mean a non-Jew? I, anyone who's not Jewish. Or when do we mean specifically someone who is an idol worshipper? There, there are many differences. There are many Rishonim who say, like on certain sugyas, and say, these halachas apply by real the pagans back in, uh, in Eretz Yisrael when they conquered it who were incredibly uh, immoral and murderous and you know, like just totally despicable people. The people that the Oivda the that they lived amongst, either the Christians or the Muslims, whatever, they're not real, uh, they're not as bad as that, and these halachas wouldn't apply. So something to always just keep in the back of your mind whenever you see the term for non-Jew or akum, goy, ger, akum. There are a few other terms we see now and then um, for them. Okay, but on that, let's go into the Gemara. So, Amalei, Rav Budai, Rav Ashi. Rav Budai said to Rav Ashi, Yes, sir, al-kadei da'im hu da'in loik, te loikhin, ho bich da'i da'im loikhin. 
You're telling me that you are allowed, you're not allowed to buy them for more than their value, implying that you can buy it. Uh, you can have the non-Jewish tefillin seller in town and you can go buy your tefillin from him. You see that if you buy a Sefer Torah from a non-Jew, you can read it. It says, deal. So the Gemara says, and which we're going to see is a, not so straightforward that you can buy a Sefer Torah from a non-Jew and just read it. So deal malignos. No, maybe that is too lignos to do to you buy it from the non-Jew to put it away. Geniza, what we call Geniza, you put it away. Again, you're not allowed to read it, but you have to buy it from them so that it's not left in a disgraceful or degrading um, way. So Zomar Rav Nachman Aktina, Rav Nachman said, we have a tradition, if a min, a heretic, writes it, it should be burnt. Now here's an interesting one, based on what I was just saying. The Ritva says, what's a min? He basically says a Christian priest. <laughs> Someone totally dedicated to Jesus and their way of thinking and life. Um, if you look at Rashi, what does he say a min is? Um, where is it? Min? Rashi says similar, but he says someone who's totally attached to Avodah Zorah like a Khmer. Again, the Ritva was much more clear in calling it, at least the one, it's not, I don't think it's our Ritva, it's, another, it's, an, it's a different version of what the Ritva said. It was much more clear in saying basically a Christian. So, um, so again, it's obviously, you can't just say that if you're living under Christian yeah. government. So that's where it might be judged. Okay, but a min is a, a non-Jew who is very dedicated to the Avodah or to their worship. So that's a min. A, a, it's not just a regular heretic, it's someone who is very, very dear, very attached to the Avodah Zorah. So if he writes a Sefer Torah Yisra, if you burn it, why? Because you assume he's written it for the sake of the Avodah He hasn't written it for Hashem, he's written it for, let's say, Jesus or something like that. Kosfu if it's written by a regular non-Jew, he ignores, then you bury it. Or a regular idol worshiper, you bury it. And not bury it, put it away. We bury them. That's what we do with Gnizah. Yeah. Gnizah literally means put it away. Yeah. If it's found in the hands of the min. It wasn't written by the min, but he had it. Or if it's found found in the hands of Gnizah. Some say you have to... Sorry. I missed a word, an important word. If it's found in the hands of the akum, then you put it, of the, of the min, you put it away. If it's found in the hands of the akum, omri lo yignos for omri lo Some say you have to put it away, and some say you have to, you can read from it. I, when it's found in his hands, we don't know did he write it, we don't know if it was written with the wrong okay. intent, and therefore you have to put it in Geniza. Rashi says it's a fake spaker. Uh, what's the fake spaker? Did he write it or not? Maybe it was written by a Jew. And even if he did write it, maybe he didn't write it for the sake of Avodah Zorah, and that's fine. So therefore, that's why that opinion would hold you can read it. Now we're going to have three prices on what you do with the Sefer Torah written by an Oyvek Kochavim. It says, One price says you burn it. Another one says you put it away. Another opinion says you can actually read from it. You can use it. You can, have a, you can have a Sefer Torah written by a non-Jew and use it in Shul. This is why, now they're contradicting each other. Do you burn it? Do you put it away? Or can you actually even use it? So, this is Rebbe Lezer who holds, and we see this elsewhere, that you, ta- you assume a non-Jew's intent is for the Avodah So when he's writing God, Yudkei Vovke in the Sefer Torah, he does not mean Hashem, he means uh, Baal, Ashtoros, or whatever his Avodah Zorah is. Vohodetanya Yignoz, the one that says Yignoz, Haitana hu detani Rav Amnuna bereiderav derovami parshuna, it's from the teaching of Rav Amnuna bereiderav derovami parshuna, Sefer Torah, Tfilin, Mezuzah, Shekosfon, Mosur, Oive, Kochovim, Ve'eved, Ve'isha, Ve'katan, Ve'kuti, Ve'israel, Mumar, Psulin, they're invalid. I know that you burn them, but they're invalid. What are those? So I left out min because we've seen the halacha of min that you actually burn it. So Mosur is a Jew who hands over other Jews to the government. Contrast to Sefer Torah. Oyved Kochavim, that would be a regular non-Jew. Eved, Ishevakatan, a slave, a woman, and a mana, or a kuti. A kuti is, let's just assume, a regular non-Jew. Yisrael Mumar, and a Jew who doesn't keep Torah. Sulin are invalid. Why? Shenemar says, Ukshartim Upsavtem, you. It says, Ukshartim Leos Halyetchem, Yula Totavos Bainenechem, Ukesavtam Amuzuzos Besecho. 
Kol sheyeshnu b'kshira. So it connects the tying on your tefillin to the writing of them. Kol sheyeshnu b'kshira, yeshnu b'ktiva, kol sheyeshnu b'kshira, yeshnu b'kshira. Only those who are high in tying on tefillin can write, say, for Torah tefillin or mezuzahs. And anyone who is not obligated, all these other people, would not be allowed to... Yeah. So, again, why many of them are exempt because they're non-Jews. They don't wear tefillin, so they can't write, say, for Torah tefillin, according to this opinion. Others are like women, slaves, and children are exempt from tefillin because it's a mitzvah's assay, and therefore... Um, once you're saying that it's a mitzvah, oh, it's a mitzvah, Asa Shazma and Gromit has a set time and therefore they're exempt. So, so that's, that's the second b'risa that you put it away because again, it's, it's invalid. It says, The one who says you can actually use it is the following Tanya. You can pass for him from an Anju, but call Mokom in any place of Aju, Suvim Kil Chosom, as long as they wrote it, Kahalocha. He holds that a non-Jew writes a Sefer Torah with the correct intent. That's fine. There was a non-Jew in Sidan who used to write Sfarim. In those days, I imagine writing Sfarim was literally just Tanakh, the Torah, the Vimeg Suvim. And he allowed Jews to buy it from them. So so, so that's the the opinion. That's... uh, So that we see even Rabbi Shimon Gamliel, Pascal like this, that you can have a Sefer Torah written by a non-Jew. Now, the, the, part of the difficulty is this assumes that it doesn't have to be Lishma because a non-Jew can't, doesn't know to write the Sefer Torah or doesn't have the yeah, qualifications to write the Sefer Torah for the sake of Hashem. So maybe, Rabbi Shimon, maybe the, this opinion holds that you don't have to write it for the sake of Hashem. You so know that when I went to Sefer Torah, they're writing a Sefer Torah. And, uh, yeah, so we're when, very when we careful. By the letter... When you buy the letter and then he writes for you, you've got to say something, Lishmo. Yeah, yeah. So, so we Paskin that it has to, especially Hashem's name, have to be written Lishmo, for yeah. the sake of Kedusha, for the sake of Hashem, for his holy name. But maybe Rabbi Shem Gamil doesn't agree with that. Maybe he doesn't hold that it has to be written Lishmo. As long as it's not written for Avodah Zorah. Yeah. I, when the non writes uh, Elohim, he's not referring to uh, Baal, he's referring yeah. to Hashem, then that's fine. Says for Rabbi Shimon Gamliel, boy, but Rabbi Shimon Gamliel holds that you even have to have the hearts prepared lishmor. boy, obviously you should require the ksivalishmor. We're going to prove now that Rabbi Shimon Gamliel holds that the parchment for writing it on and the the leather houses of the tefillin, the boxes that we see, have to be prepared lishmor. Obviously, then the writing of the tefillin have to be lishmor. So you can't tell me that Rabbi Shimon Gamli would allow it written by a non-Jew. And where do we say the Tanya, as we saw in the Bible, if you cover your tefillin in gold, or you uh, make the leather that they covered in out of non-kosher animal, they invalid. If the hide is of a kosher animal, it is kosher for tefillin, even if it is not prepared lishma. Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel, Omer, Afilu or Bahimah Tahir, Psulis, Adshi, Ibdun lishma. Rabbi Shimon Gamliel says, no, it has to be prepared lishma. You can't have, if you make your leather boxes for your tefillin out of another, out of a kosher animal, everything's fine, but you did it for another purpose, not for tefillin, they would be possible. But we see, so if Ramon Gamil holds the tefillin have to be valid, how much more so the tefillin boxes have to be valid? How much done lishmo? How much more so the writing has to be done lishmo? So Amar Rabbi Bar Shmuel, Now we're discussing a ger who returned to his evil ways. I he converted to Judaism and then he went back to his avoider Zora. So he does. He, he's once a Jew, always a Jew. So he cannot say for Torah Tefillin Mezuzah. He lived as a non-Jew, but he's really a Jew, and that's why he goes, Oh, the Surah Kol Shekain, Min. You tell me, you have this non-Jew who became Jewish. He then goes back to his Zorah. He's a Min. He's attached to his Zorah. That's possible. That you burn. Never mind, you can't use, you burn it. So, Amar Abashi, Mishum Yira. No, he, not voluntarily, but he was afraid. There were times if you converted to Judaism, they would kill you. So he was, he was afraid that they were going to catch him. So he started living as a Oivya again. But not because that's what he believed. So there, his Sifrei Torah was where Rabbi Shimon Gamliel allowed you to buy. But in general, Rabbi Shimon Gamliel would not allow you to buy a Sifrei Torah that is written by Anandji because it doesn't have the status of Lishmo. Um, 
Let's just finish off and then I'll do one interesting Tosfos and we'll leave it for the week. It says, You pay for their value plus a tarpeik. My tarpeik. There was this Arab woman who brought tefillin before Abaya. Says, so he said, Can I buy each tefillin for a few dates? I was like, ah, oh, tefillin, you got tefillin now, oh, they're not that valuable. Let me just, uh, I'll give you here a few rand for those tefillin. says, Almav Imale Zahira. She became full of poison. I should be furious. Shoklish Shadzinsa Banara. So she took the tefillin and threw them in the river. It says, Omar Lay Omar Abaya said, I should have made the tefillin seem so cheap in our eyes. So I think Abaya's teacher has a very, very important lesson when negotiating. <laughs> Ransom in Sifrei Torah, Tefillin, and Mezuzah, you've got to follow a very fine line. You can't make them seem too valuable because then they're going to go steal more or you know, cause other trouble, like we saw at the top of the page. It's midnight, you're not allowed to um, pay too much for them. On the other hand, if you make them seem like nothing, well, then the non Jews aren't going to care about them at all. And like, you know, I'm not going to bother returning these Tefillin to a Jew. You, know, you steal a suitcase and in the suitcase are children with Jesus. like, oh, she's like, well, I can only get a few rands for these. I might as well just chuck them. So you don't want that as well. You want them to sell them back to the Jews. Okay, there's a very fascinating process here. We've brought the halacha that only those who can, who wear tefillin are obligated in writing tefillin. Oh, can, can fulfill the mitzvah writing. Right? So a woman, a slave, a child, etc. Even though they can do it, well, a woman at least can do it more. She can't write. She can't write the Sefer Torah. She can't write Tefillin, and she can't write Mezuzahs because only those who—it's a drasha. Only those who are obligated are obligated to wear them can fulfil writing them. Rabbeinu Tam extends that quite far. I don't think we don't paskin like this. We might try, but we don't really paskin. It says, "Mikan Omer Rabbeinu Tam Da'in Isha Ogeres Lulav." You shouldn't. Rabbeinu Tam says you shouldn't let a woman tie the lulav. Vo'ose tzitzis or make tzitzis kivendolam mifkadei because they're not commanded. So Rabbeinu Tam extends it to any mitzvah that a woman's not commanded in, she can't prepare. So you can't have a woman tied tzitzis. That would be one of the most practical ramifications. But says, but that can't be because, and he brings us, he says, tefillin made by a non-Jew apostle, implying that if they're made by a Jew, it's fine. He says, similarly, a sukkah of ganbach is kosher, a ganav noshim, etc. It's fine. So he's uh, so Tosas is um, it's specifically Sefer Torah Tefillin or Mezuzas because of the Strosha Ukshartem Uksavtem. So that's an interesting machlok as we showed him how far you extend this principle of uh, of women not right of not women not doing mitzvahs. They definitely can't write Sefer Torah Tefillin or Mezuzas. That's clear from that Drosha. What about other mitzvahs that are unique to men? Okay, have a very good chance. Yes.